A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His reward is with him and his gifts accompany him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. The word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that you gently lead us. Father, thank you that the word illuminates our path. Thank you that your word remains forever. Lord, let every man be a liar, and your word is true. And we proclaim and we profess in this morning that we have the privilege to just stand on your word. And Lord, would you illuminate our minds and our hearts this morning with your word. And we pray this in the name of God. Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. Well, welcome to Awaken. It's great to have you here uh, this Sunday morning. And uh, we are going through a series uh, just on core values. What are the core values of our church? Last week we covered grace. This week we're covering commitment to God and his word. And so it's an exciting thing. And uh, I'd love to jump back. We just read Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. And so I'd love to jump back and, and share what happens after Isaiah 40. It's a beautiful passage. But what happens to the people of God after this passage? Well, it's not exactly good things. Israel, the northern kingdom, is defeated and destroyed. Judah, the southern kingdom, is also defeated and destroyed. And in fact, in Ezekiel, we see the glory of God leaving the temple. Ezekiel sees this vision that where the one place on earth where the one true God is worshipped, his glory actually leaves the temple before the city and the temple are destroyed. Later, though, the temple's rebuilt. Uh, if you want to read about it, it's in Haggai. The temple is rebuilt. And then we see Jerusalem restored, the walls rebuilt. And the city once again re-inhabited in the book of Nehemiah. And then the last prophet speaks and gives God's word to the people around 430. And then God's word doesn't really speak for the next 430 years. There's not a message from a prophet for 430 years. What is God doing? That's the question that I, that I hope we can 
answer this morning? What is God doing when it seems like his word is silent? And so what do people want after Isaiah 40? We just walked through 700 years, and those, those were just some of the, the touch points, but those 700 years are filled with tragedy and oppression. What do people want? Isaiah 40 says it, verse 1, the first word, comfort. People want comfort. God's people want comfort. 700 years of oppression, and all they want is comfort. Isn't that what we want too? Don't we just want comfort from God? Comfort to know that we're his kids, that everything's going to be all right. Because see, things don't feel like they're going to be all right. Maybe you're struggling at work and it doesn't feel like you're going to be there much longer. Maybe you just don't like your job. Maybe in your marriage, your marriage isn't very comforting. Your relationships with your children isn't very comforting. And you go to God's word and say, God, just give me some comfort. I just want some comfort. How many get through this dark and difficult season? And the frustrating thing is God's word doesn't speak. There's nothing that just jumps out on you. You don't know what the heck you're supposed to do. I'd hazard a guess that all of us have been here. We've been in this position, in this place where God's word, what are you doing, God? And one of the tragic things about the people of God's history is that they've looked for comfort not from God's word, but from the world and culture around them. I was just re- uh, reading with one of our college guys um, at the mansion, the Mystic Mansion. That's where six of our college guys stay. Um, so um, it's a pretty awesome place. Um, if you go there, you'll have some uh, great times of fellowship. You'll probably get beaten ping pong by one of them at least. Um, but I love it. They're, they're men committed to God's word as well. And uh, one of our college guys is going through Ezekiel. So we're reading Ezekiel. It's a tough book to get through. But we're reading about Israel and we're reading about Judah and we're reading about how God says you're prostituting yourselves to the world. You're in a relationship with the world and not with me. God says actually you're, the, the analogy he uses is that they're lifting up their skirts to the world. They're trying to be comforted by the world. I think maybe that's where some of us are as well. That if we can just have material comfort or financial comfort or relational comfort, that means everything's good with our walk with God. God calls that idolatry. And so God's word is silent to his people, silent for over 400 years. And we have to ask ourselves, so what in the world does this mean for us? What happens when God's word is silent in our lives? When we're not hearing from God? What happens when God goes dark? Flip flip back to Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, it's a few chapters later. And this is what the prophet says. 
He says, for just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. See, I think there's hidden ways that God's word is pleasing to him and prospering his purposes but that we don't see in our lives. In order for us to see that in our lives, what I'd like us to do is just look back at history. Because there's 400 years where God's word isn't speaking, but there's 400 years where God is still sovereign over the earth, where God is still ruling and reigning, and where God is still orchestrating things for his glory and his goodness. And so what are those things? There's five hidden ways that God's word worked from the last prophet of Malachi to the prophet of John the Baptist. So one of those ways is a cultural linguistic way. The second is actually engineering. So I know there's some engineers in here. You guys are going to love this. The third is there's a faithful obedience and a longing for change, a longing for the Messiah. Four, there's a clear confrontation and contrast with the culture of the world and God's culture, with the city of man and the city of God. And then last, the greatest thing, from hiddenness, God reveals his son, Jesus Christ, at the proper time, at the right time. So we're going to look at these things. So the first one, the translation of the Bible from Hebrew into Greek. This is beautiful because the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. No one really reads or writes Hebrew outside of Israel. No one gets it. No one understands it. But in the early 4th century, a Greek, Alexander Magnus, Alexander the Great, conquers much of the Mediterranean world and brings Greek language and thought and culture. And so we have Greek becomes this common language. And then he dies, and then his empire splits into three. And then we see in Egypt, the second ruler of Egypt, Ptolemy too. His nickname is actually lover of humanity. And he hears about this religion that he doesn't know anything about. And he commissions men, six men, from each tribe, 72 men to come to Alexandria, one of the greatest cities in the ancient world, and translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. God uses a pagan king and his wealth to commission 70 men, 72 men, six men from each tribe. So if you ever see that LXX in your Bible, that means it's from the Septuagint. And what's amazing about this is the, the New Testament Bible authors, when they go back and, and quote the Old Testament, they're actually quoting from the Septuagint because they want the nations to know what God's word says. The translation occurs in the island of Pharaohs. It's where the, the library of Alexandria was, one of the seven wonders of the world. The greatest source of knowledge in the ancient world was the library of Alexander, but it did not have the foundation of knowledge, God's word in it. And the Bible is translated there. 
and this lighthouse that's shining a light all across the Mediterranean that's saying ships come to the safe harbor of Alexandria is where God's word is shining out as it's being translated into Greek. And the translators, these Hebrew men, six guys from each tribe, can you imagine what kind of like, I mean, you have 72 guys in one room trying to agree on something? Wow. But their prayer over and over and over again, they pray that all of humanity would hear God's word from the work that they are doing. God's word was not silent. The second thing is engineering. In 27 BC, we see all of Rome come under the reign and rule of one person, Caesar Augustus. In fact, Caesar Augustus is the one who issues proclamations throughout the Roman world saying that he is the good news himself. He is the gospel. And the rule and might of Rome is the gospel for the nations. Worship him in Rome. But one of the things he brings is that if you're going to make that claim, you better bring the peace and prosperity that comes with it. And how does he do that? He brings roads to every corner of the empire. Commerce, trade, prosperity. This network of roads, the technology wasn't really rivaled until the 20th century. Can you imagine that? We didn't really build better, Romes than the Ro better roads than the Romans did until the 20th century. In fact, many roads that we built are actually on top of Roman roads. We're kind of like stealing their engineering grades, their hard work. The roads were built by the legions. But what's fascinating and marvelous about this is that the gospel would travel along these same roads, unhindered by men and women who could walk from one corner of the empire to the other. There's a picture of a Roman road outside of Antioch. And we can just think that this was a road just like Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch on. And they got to walk through the meaning of scripture. These roads were highways to the nations, pointing people to the gospel. The third thing that God did in this time was within his people, within Judaism, there became a faithful obedience and longing for the Messiah to come. People actually begin to crave God. And we see this when a false kind of prophet and priest comes up, he pays for the priesthood. He pays to be the priest before the one true God and the Jews revolt. You do not pay for the priesthood. This is the Maccabean revolt. There's a restoration of the priesthood to the Jews. We see the rise of the Pharisees in the second century. And we, we give the Pharisees a really bad rap. The time of Jesus, there were over 6,000 Pharisees around Judea and their purpose and goal was to bring Torah and righteousness and help the people follow the law. 
In fact, in Acts, we learn that the Pharisees were actually some of the greatest pastors and leaders of the early church. So we give them a bad rap, but they are deeply concerned with the righteousness of God. So much so that Jesus says our righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees. And one of the things that became almost their mantra was they were waiting for the true prophet to arise. And so we see that people are hungry for God. The last thing that we see is this clear contrast between the culture of the people of God and the culture of the Greco-Roman spread, what we call Hellenization. One of the things we see that immediately is what they worship. What the Greco-Roman culture worships is that many gods, as many gods as you can think of, building temples, and we're going to go worship Worship an idol, pay for an idol so that we can have what? Comfort. We can have peace and prosperity. In fact, the emperor himself, Augustus, raised himself up to a divine status so that people would come and worship the emperor. When Rome defeats Jerusalem around 60 B.C., Pompey, the Roman general, comes in and he comes into Jerusalem and he comes into the temple and there's not an idol. There's nothing in the temple. And he says, what God is worshiped here? And the Jews witness and say, the God who made heaven and an earth, the one whose footstool is the earth, the one who does not have a need of an image. And then Hellenization and Greco-Roman culture, they bring baths and gyms and theaters and stadiums and slavery and oppression and games and brothels. This is the culture of the world. And it's a culture that says, pursue your own comfort, pursue your own needs, pursue your own image, revel and celebrate in that. Glory in man. And we have this small nation who's being subdued and oppressed and subjugated, wondering where their God is, saying that's not the kind of culture that we want to be. Our God is different from their gods. This was a low, dark time. The people of God were humbled and stripped defeated again and again on the battlefield, their national pride at an all-time low, and they're only dependent on him. Low times can sometimes be a messenger for good times to come. Because I think for some of us, we've been there too, humbled and stripped. God, what are you doing? I feel like I'm getting beat up every day day and all I'm trying to do is follow you. All I'm trying to do is have my family follow you. And this is the right time and the proper time that God is going to introduce his son, Jesus Christ, to the world. The revelation of Christ is the fifth hidden thing that the Jews did not even expect. 
And John the Baptist goes back to Isaiah 40, verse 3. In fact, every gospel writer goes back to Isaiah to say that the Messiah has come. 700 years later, the Messiah has come. So let's read briefly what Mark says. Again, Mark's a great place to start. It's the shortest gospel. Jumps right into it. Mark 1, 3, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We go down just a little bit more in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. You see, the glory of God left Israel and Ezekiel, but then the glory of God comes back down on the Son, on Jesus Christ. And so we see how Jesus Christ is actually the culmination of all of the hidden things that we have just been talking about. He says so himself. He said, I am the true light that is going to shine out to all men. I am the engineered highway back to God. I am the only faithful man who longs for the things of God. And as such, I'm going to be perfect and sinless and be the righteous requirement of the law needed for you. I am going to die and pay the price. I am going to be buried and I'm going to rise again. I'm going to be king over culture and bring true good news, not the emperor in Rome. I'm going to outpurpose the culture of the world with the culture of my new people. This is the story of God's word. When we read this, this is what we're reading. We're not reading how we can help our lives. We're not reading how we can get a nugget of truth for the next day. We're reading the story of God. So, so long as you think commitment to God and his word, again, that's what we're talking about, commitment to God and his word. So long as we think that is something that we do, I have to be committed to God's word. The pressure's on me. I've got to get in my Bible. You're going to miss out that God is already committed to his word. And because you realize that God is already committed to his word, you're going to realize that he actually doesn't need us to commit to his word because he's already invited us into his word. He's already invited us into his story. Paul tells a young leader this at the end of 2 Timothy. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16. We can read this verse and, and think that this, again, is, is telling us that we have to go to God and get beat up by his word, to be trained and rebuked and 
corrected instead of seeing it for the invitation that it is. An invitation into the defining relationship of our lives, which is God wants to father us and parent us and has invited us in and is adopting us in as children because all these words, especially the last one, we see training and we think, oh man, discipline and self-denial and, and that's not the context. The context of the word is actually fatherly relationship, how a father loves and trains up his child. And this is what God's word is saying. I want to love and parent you. And so when God's word goes dark, maybe we can, from the story of God, do three things. The first is this. We can maybe realize that God's word is actually not about us. It's not about what we can get out for the day or apply for that day. Those, that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But if all you're doing is reading God's word for something that you can do that day or apply that day, I would imagine that you're probably reading God's word in one of the most selfish ways possible. And that's going to be hard to hear. And the reason why is you're not trying to learn what God's word, the larger story of God's word, the larger narrative of God's word. You're not trying to look at God's word for how he sees God's word. You're just saying, God, give me something. And I would just say, maybe that's a selfish way to read God's word. What if you read God's word and said, God, instead of give me something, show me something. God, instead of give me something to apply, God, show me how you worked in the past so I can have confidence that you're working here. Are you learning the story of God? The second question that you have to ask yourself is this. Are you being parented by culture and the world and the things of the world? Or are you being parented by God's word? Where's your comfort coming from? Is your comfort coming from, oh, I finally get to go on a vacation. Oh, I finally get to sit down and, and watch the show that I wanted to watch at the end of a long day. Where's your comfort coming from? God's word says that our comfort comes from him. If you're not reading the word of God and in the word of God, then you're comforted either by yourself or by the world. And as we learned earlier, God says that's idolatry. Will you be comforted by the word of God? Um, and that's hard, right? Because we can read the word of God and, and say, I don't get anything out of this. I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. I think there's some great tools and resources out there. But let me ask you guys a question. In school, at work, if you get something that you don't understand, you just quit. You just walk away. I don't get it. You tell your boss, I don't get this new thing. Boss, like, I'm out. You say that to your teacher? No, you keep reading. You keep learning. But when it comes to the word of God, that's what we do. God, I just don't get this, so I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'll, I'll, you know, 
Maybe one day I'll figure it out. If you don't understand God's word, keep reading. It's how you learn. It's how you learn at your job. It's how you learn in school. Why would that not be how you learn with God's word? Also, I know all the pastors here, man, we love God's word. We love to teach it, to explain it, to meet with you. So if you don't understand something, let's talk about it. The third thing is the gospel changing your life. See, God's word is meant to change your life. And so if you're not seeing any change, any transformation, I don't, I don't know why you're reading God's word. Because <laughs> God's word changes your life. And here's the truth of that. Sincere repentance and apology from adults in my experience, only comes from people who are in God's word. Transformation happens as a result of God's word. It's the only thing that heals a broken marriage where two people are acting like little toddlers and, and kids. It's the only thing that helps people apologize and confess and repent is God's word. Because God it says that he is king of your life. And if he is king of your life, then he has told you what to do. And if you are not listening and reading and obeying what he has told you to do, then you're disobeying. Um, so this is what it looks like to be committed to God's word. Again, I'd argue that God's word is already committed to us. He has invited us in. And we get to read the word. And as a father, he's going to instruct us and love us and teach us and train us what to do. It's exciting. If I were to give you guys one, just one tip before we um, wrap up, and is this, um, read the word of God in bigger chunks. I know it's hard. I got three kids, two jobs, in school. I'm with you. Reading God's word is so hard. So hard to find five minutes sometimes. So hard to find 10 minutes. But I encourage you to find time to read God's word in bigger chunks. You know, most of the New Testament letters, they're not meant to be read chapter by chapter or a few verses by a few verses. They're actually meant to be read all at once. You're meant to saturate yourself with God's word. And the time that it takes you to watch a show, you could have read one of Paul's letters in its entirety. 